0: Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. This week we kick off the Secret Agent X story, The Fear Merchants, originally published in March 1936. It was written by Paul Chadwick under the pseudonym Brant House. Chadwick was the first writer for Secret Agent X and wrote 14 of the agent's adventures. Secret Agent X ran for a total of 41 issues from 1934 to 1939. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2019. For more about Secret Agent X or more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. The Fear Merchants, a Secret Agent X novel by Brant House. Chapter 1, The Crucible of Crime. High up on the fourteenth floor of the big warehouse that faced the river, four men stole forward with the swift, silent steps of stalking ghouls. A wide corridor stretched before them, murky with night shadows, dank with the dampness of neglect. The certainty of their movements as they passed along was grim proof that what they did had been carefully rehearsed. At the corridor's farther end, a high window rose. The leader of the quartet stopped abruptly when he came to this. He was a big man, ruggedly built, with features that suggested Cubist art. His head was almost square, his mouth was a straight line across a square cut jaw. His eyebrows formed a higher line set at right angles to the jutting downsweep of his nose. The others saw his profile outlined dimly against the faint glow that crept up from the street. They watched as he slowly raised the sash. They saw him poke his head cautiously into the chill night air and stare down three stories to the roof of the factory building that lay dark and still below. For seconds he peered at this, eyes squinted up, face stonily intent. Then he pulled himself in and turned. There was a faint click as his electric flash went on. Holding the light cup deftly in the palm of his big hand, he let his beam fall on the features of his companions, studying each as he had studied the roof below. Two were young, hard-bitten like himself, men with the steely eyes and the grim mouths of fighters, men picked for physical courage and mental poise, operatives of the Bates Detective Agency, one of the most efficient private crime-fighting organizations in the city. The third man looked strange, by contrast. Trampish, elderly, unkempt, his gray hair wisped down over a seamed old face, Rumpled in faded clothing hung on a body that seemed to have lost the limberness of youth. He stood with drooping shoulders, staring listlessly at the floor. The holder of the flashlight scowled. "'You better wait here, Peasley.' The shabby man shook his head. "'No, Mr. Bates. I will make it. Mr. Martin asked me to help. You lead the way.' The square-faced leader, Harvey Bates, looked doubtfully. He nodded, said a gruff, "'Okay.' Then spoke suddenly to his own operatives, addressing them in clipped sentences, his voice harsh as the rasps of steel on ice. Street's full of cops. Tough going if they catch us. Hell to explain. They'll shoot. We can't shoot back, but we've got to do the job right. He handed his flash to one of his men, took a bundle from beneath his arm, unwrapped it. It was a long section of rope ladder, tightly coiled. There were strong metal fasteners spliced to the ends. He looped these over the steam pipe, snapped them shut. He let the end of the rope ladder out the window, paying it carefully down along the building's face. There were no other windows on this side. The warehouse wall was a sheer unbroken drop of sixty feet, steep and dangerous as a cliff. The rope ladder finally lay swaying in the darkness like a giant snake. Bates nodded grimly, swung a leg over the windowsill, and groped for the first rung with his foot. When I get down, I'll jerk. Scallet, you come next. In a moment he was gone, descending into the darkness till he stood on the tarred surface of the factory roof. The others followed. Peasley came last of all. Yet in spite of his awkward, trampish, and feeble look, he didn't falter. Bates eyed him a moment, angular jaw thrust out, then he gave final instructions to his men. You men know what's up. We're here to search every foot of this building and see if those firebugs who are holding up the insurance companies have been at work. It's a sure tip that the place will go up and smoke before midnight. The Great Eastern people wouldn't come across, and this dump's on the spot. The cops have searched already. Maybe we'll have better luck. Bates angled his big body at the roof edge and peered down into the street. On both corners of the block, alert figures were visible. Others prowled in the shadows across the way. There was a police cordon around the factory tonight. The way down the warehouse wall is the only means of entrance. This the police had overlooked. Bates crossed silently to a skylight in the center of the roof. It was hooked on the inside, where iron stairs led up. The agency detective took a small jimmy from his coat and prepared to force the fastenings. He had no more than thrust the jimmy's head under the crack of the skylight cover when the stranger, Peasley, spoke quietly. I know a better way. Bates straightened, scowling, a sharp reply in his square-cut lips. Before he could utter it, Peasley set to work. He produced a rubber suction thimble from somewhere in his coat, pressed this to the glass. In his right hand was a small glass cutter, hardly larger than a match. He drew this deftly around the edge of a skylight pane. He grasped the suction thimble, pulled. There was a single, barely audible snap. The pane came loose. Peasley laid it carefully down, reached to the opening, and unsnapped the skylight hooks. In a moment, the cover was lifted and the men were ready to descend. Bates was scowling, keenly eyeing Peasley. Then he clipped... "'We'll go straight down. Begin at bottom. "'Work up. "'Easy with those lights.' "'His operatives nodded. "'They'd been provided with electric flashes, "'no bigger round than pencils. "'Seas through a straight beam, "'converging in a disc of light "'the size of a ten-cent piece. "'They passed quietly down "'through the floors of the empty factory, "'rubber-soled feet soundless "'on the steel-shod stairs. "'Not till they'd reached the engine room below, "'street-leveled, Bates paused. "'No mistakes. "'We're dealing with rats. "'Killers. "'We don't know how they get their fires going. "'Tonight, we'll find out. "'Get busy.' He gestured with his light for the men to spread and begin their search. Peasley moved away from the others toward a clustered corner of the room. His stabbing, tiny beam systematically covered every foot of wall space, every brace and pipe. His strange, dark eyes followed the shifting ray at the questing eagerness of a hawk. Minutes passed. Suddenly, he tensed and knelt. A test outlet of the factory sprinkler system led down close to the floor. There were indications on the brass nozzle that had been recently turned. But this wasn't what held the gray-haired man. It was the faint sheen of a greasy substance on the metal oil, perhaps, to make the nozzle screw thread limber. He stooped and sniffed, and the muscles along his back seemed to bulk larger like the rising hackles of a dog. A faint, disturbing odor reached his nostrils. Calcium carbide, it seemed to be, the gray stuff that gives the white-hot heat the burning acetylene vapor. Peasley stared at the nozzle a moment, then jerked to his feet. His light arced upward. His quick eye followed the sprinkler pipe to the automatic vent above. There were dozens of those vents in every room of the building. If some substance containing calcium carbide had been put into the sprinkler system itself, if this were ignited, what would be the result? His own answer was a sudden sound somewhere in the building, the faint, insect buzz of a tiny metal ratchet quivered in the air. Peasley heard Bates give a snort, heard one of the detectives whisper hoarsely, "'What's that?' Another vibration sounded, like a katydid giving voice in a night-darkened forest. A chorus of buzzings came from several parts of the factory at once. A watchman, prowling on the floor above, cried out. Then louder, closer than any yet, a ghostly, metallic buzzing began in the very room they were in. It was over near the wall, hidden, it seemed, behind the plaster, close to the spot where Peasley had sniffed at the sprinkler nozzle. He started toward it, stepped suddenly back. For a tongue of flame, it spurted against the pipe. It came from the wall, lancing outward through a break that had opened. Hot and straight as a torch, it played against the pipe. There was a sizzling sound, a boiling. The pipe appeared to swell before their eyes. A crack opened and a greasy liquid gushed out. In an instant it glowed with lambent life became a luminous snake-like mass of writhing flame. The heat mounted, increasing internal pressure in the pipe. A melting, devouring fury of flame shot like a swift sword across the room. It struck the side of a great boiler, bit with the force of a gnawing canker into the steel. The light of its seething, hissing sparks showed up the white faces of Harry Bates and his men. The whole room was bathed in shimmering ghostly light the place had become a chamber of horror and swift destruction. The detectives made a dash toward the stairs. They mounted the steel steps in sudden panic, climbed while the jet of torchlight flame snarled below them. But the room above was hardly better. Pipes in all parts of the building were bursting, hissing. Gouts of flame shot across space in a roaring inferno. Steel walls buckled and melted. Plaster crumbled into a red-hot dust. The watchman they had heard came running to them, sweat streaming from his face. His eyes were bulging, fists clenched. A column of flame like a malicious living thing caught his body close to the middle. It seemed for a moment to wrap writhing arms around him. A piercing, frenzied scream came from his throat. The sound echoed through the high vaults of the factory above the fire's roar. The man lurched and staggered, then collapsed, literally cut in two by the crucible heat. He lay, a horrible, blackened thing that had once been a man. Bates' square-cut face was bathed in sweat. Cords in his bull neck stood out. He made a dash for the steel stairs down which they had come from the floor above. But Peasley saw him and followed, clutching his arm before the detective had taken a half-dozen steps. He had noticed that what Bates in his hurry had overlooked. Molten metal and lava-like streams was already trickling down the treads. The stairs were melting high above. They were no longer safe. All of them were trapped in a seething inferno of flame. Chapter Two Fiend of Fire Bates spoke hoarsely, bloodless lips close to Peasley's ear. "'Can't leave by the door or windows. Cops will get us!' Peasley abruptly drew the detective toward the north side of the room. Another chamber led off here. There was no glow of bursting sprinkler pipes and evidence as yet, but to reach it, he and the others had to run a gauntlet of savage flame. It singed their clothing as they swept by, reaching curling fingers at their flesh. They plunged on the unlighted chamber. Stopped. Peasy light swung up. There was no sprinkler outlet visible. The room was a storage chamber for heavy machinery. There was no window either, only a blank brick wall straight ahead. This lay against the side of the warehouse they had left ten minutes ago. No window, and the heat of the flames behind them was increasing every second. Escape by the exits was cut off. They were imprisoned by a flaming barrier, sealed in this ventless chamber, till more flame entered and snuffed out their lives in a torrent of molten steel. Bates began swearing hoarsely, monotonously, as red-rimmed eyes darting about. One of the detectives with him turned back toward the flames. Peasley stopped him with a quick command. Uncomprehending, but startled to submission by this clear order in the face of raging tumult, Bates and his men stood still. "'Peasley ran straight forward toward the blank brick wall. "'When he neared it, he took something from his inner pocket. "'It was a small object, shaped like a packet of cigarettes. "'There was a tiny lever at one end, "'a sharp metal point set solidly in the black case. "'He placed the case against the bricks three feet from the floor. "'He jabbed the metal point into a crack in the plaster. "'It stayed there firmly. "'Then Peasley pressed the lever down. "'A faint, quick sputtering like an electric spark came from within the box.' Peasley turned and dashed back toward the spot where he had left the others. He pulled them down behind a face of heavy machinery. Their blank faces showed they did not understand. Before they could even question him, a tremendous explosion shook the room. The floor seemed to rise and quiver. Plaster and bits of bricks whistled above their heads. Dust filled the air in stifling clouds. Deafening echoes sounded. Peasley leaped up as quickly as he had crouched. His flash, spraying forward through the murk, played over a jagged hole in the wall. He had set a bomb and had blown straight through the bricks and plaster with the force of a giant battering ram. Bates suddenly turned and stared at the man called Peasley. There was respect and awe on the big, detective's square-cut face. His belligerent manner entirely left him. His voice came hoarsely. Got it now. Only one man I know of could have pulled a stunt like that. Only one man. You're him. You're Secret Agent X. There was a moment's silence, broken only by the hiss of the flames outside and the men's deep breathing. Then Peasley nodded. He pointed to the hole in the wall. Follow me. They did so, obeying silently, quickly, like well-trained automatons. "'They knew they were in the presence of a master manhunter, "'slightest word was a the command. "'They realized the shabby, gray-haired figure ahead of them "'had saved their lives. "'They slipped to the wall like shadows. "'They left the scorching, seething death of the flames behind. "'Then suddenly they paused. "'Shouts and footsteps sounded down a long corridor "'directly in front. "'The police had entered the warehouse. "'The threat of discovery and capture was imminent again. "'Secret Agent X spoke a swift command. "'Head toward the back of the building. "'Leave by a window. Quick!' "'And you, Chief!' Harvey Bates said firmly. I'll hold off the cops. The flashing, compelling light of authority gleamed in the agent's dark eyes. Bates grunted a word of agreement, then they sped off at right angles away from the menace of the oncoming police. When they had left, the secret agent leaped to a high pile of old boxes at the hallway side. He climbed the magically, reached a steel-bracing girder over the floor. He walked along this, stood poised above the direct center of the corridor where the police must pass. "'They came on, guns gleaming, flashlights bobbing in their hands. "'There were only two of them,' he saw, "'but they'd apparently glimpsed Harvey Bates and his men "'and heard their voices. When of the bluecoats crashed three quick shots along the wall. "'Bullets ricocheted, whine. "'The pungent smell of cordite rose to the agent's nostrils. "'He waited, crouching, every muscle tense. "'They were only ten feet away, five feet. "'They were directly under him now. "'He dropped like a panther, "'plummeting from a limb on unsuspecting quarry. "'Yet he was careful not to injure the blue-coated men.' He merely knocked them off their feet, sent their guns spinning, made their flashlights crash. Cursing, clawing, they went further down in a heap beneath his outstretched arms and body. They struck with furious fists at this human whirlwind who had dropped apparently from the sky. X untangled himself in an instant, backed away. He turned and raced forward along the way the police had come. He heard them behind him, searching frantically for their guns. One located his weapon when the agent had taken 50 strides, but the cop's flashlight was broken and the corridor was dark. The bullets the policeman sent after X screamed harmlessly by. He ran on, reached the open door of the warehouse, plunged quickly through it, and he knew that Bates and his operatives were also safe. But he made no attempt to join them. Instead, he crossed a rear yard running, vaulted a fence. For a moment, he crouched in utter darkness, and his hands lifting the strange things to his face. He drew off the gray toupee of Peasley, revealing a sandy one beneath it. He made deft changes in the plastic material covering his skin. He erased the lines of age, rounded the features. He touched pigment taken from a tiny vial here and there to his flesh. Lastly, peeled off the ragged garments that clothed him, exposing a trim business suit below. He whipped a cloth cap over his head, stepped cautiously into a side street, a different person. Even if Bates should meet him face-to-face, there'd be no chance of recognition. The man of a thousand faces had assumed another role. Outside, along the wide avenue at the end of the street, sirens rose in a screaming tumult. Already, a half-dozen alarms had been turned in. Fire engines and police radio cruisers were converging on this festering spot of incendiary crime. The agent lagged it further the avenue, turned right, and saw the light of the burning factory lifting evilly into the sky. The windows had become oblongs of shimmering light. Some had burst outwards, shattering glass into the street. Bright tongues of flame were shooting up. The whole great building was like a roaring furnace with every draft turned on. The police cordon around it still held, and reserves were hastily coming up. They were stringing fire lines across the entire block. The curious crowds, increasing in size every instant, were being held at bay. Only the uniformed men, police, and firefighters in their helmets and long black coats were allowed inside. X saw the first streams of water pumped on the factory. He saw the hissing drops disappear in dense clouds of steam, seeming only to add to the heat of the flames. He saw the futility of such a method of battle. Evidently, the firemen saw it, too. They made way suddenly for a huge red truck that came thundering up. It was packed, not with hose but with gleaming tanks of chemicals under pressure. The agent recognized some of the latest firefighting equipment, great metal flasks of carbon dioxide, the gas that can smother flames in ships' holds and in blazing cellars. Firemen, daring the terrific heat, ran pipes from the truck to the lower windows of the factory. An engine throbbed into life. Pumps sucked the gas from the tanks, forced it in screaming jets into the building. Under its spreading blanket, even the chemical-fed fury of the flames within began to abate. One chemical was battling another in this startling war of science. As the heat in the lower floors began to show signs of subsiding, firemen thrust ladders against the factory's walls. They inserted new pipes of the stifling gas into the windows of the floor above these seeming pygmies in their helmet hats were slowly conquering the mighty giant of flame. the agent knew the reason the arsonist terror in the past few days had spread there had been another purposely set fires the truck had been held ready its equipment augmented waiting for another emergency call now it was proving its usefulness He started suddenly, turning his gaze upward as the sound drifted down from the sky. Mist, red as the flame below, swirled above the burning factory. Out of this mist, eerie and sinister, came the hum of an airplane's motor. It throbbed like the drone of a giant bee poised above Hell's chimney, and in an instant the agent saw the plane itself. A darting will-o'-the-wisp of black and yellow swooped down out of the night. A small, fast ship with bands around its fuselage, looking for all the world like a curious wasp drawn by the fire below. "'Circle closed in the heat that seemed to reach for its wings. "'The pilot peered mad to risk those perilous currents. "'The small plane bucked and quivered in the eddying drafts. "'It banked, turned, and came lower still, "'and the agent sensed something sinister in its strange maneuvers. "'It was a winged wasp of death bound on some evil mission. "'Police and firemen on the pavement saw it. "'Eyes in the dense crowd outside the fire lines "'watched its actions in straining silence.' It banked once more and came down till its black wings almost touched the tops, till a puff of heat made its striped fuselage roll like a casket sea. In that instant, the gloved arm of the lone pilot moved out from the small plane's side. X caught a quick glimpse of something dropping, small objects round and hard as walnuts. They fell to the side of the factory where the firemen were fighting the blaze of their chemical gas. And where they fell, men screamed and staggered. Above the roar of the flames, above the drone of the plane's motor and the hissing gas came a shrill sound of human torment. The agent saw firemen clutch at their faces wildly. He saw two tumble from a high ladder and pitch headlong into the streets to their death. He saw others run away from their posts like men gone suddenly mad. "'Chilled with horror, he burst forward through the stunned and gaping crowd. "'He tore through the fire lines beyond. "'No one tried to stop him. "'The police stood frozen with wonder at their posts. "'Firemen outside the radius of the nut-like missiles "'were running toward their comrades. "'X caught sight of the features of one of the wildly clawing forms. "'The man had fallen to his knees. "'He had torn his coat and helmet off. "'His face was a bloated mass of tortured flesh, "'swollen to twice its normal size. "'His arms and legs looked as though he'd been stricken suddenly with alphanitis. "'His lips and throat had swelled till his anguished screams had been choked off.' As the agent neared him, he fell backwards writhing, and then lay unmoving, a puffed and ghastly corpse. Chapter 3 Death's High Carnival Above the screams of the victims of the strange, bloating death, there sounded the sinister humming of the murder plane. The agent raised his eyes. The striped ship was just disappearing in the swirling, crimson mist. He looked around him. The scene in front of the burning factory was like a glimpse into some hideous torture chamber at the mouth of hell. Men were stumbling, falling, crying out in anguish. Men were pulling their bloated, pain-wrecked bodies over the pavement where the light of the flame shimmered in a weird devil's dance of doom. Men's livid skins and features puffed beyond all human semblance, lay gasping out their lives. The agent stood with clenched hands, eyes dark with horror. There was something he had not reckoned on. He had come on the trail of mysterious, undercover crime. He had come to investigate the activities of an arson ring, which he knew was active in the city. Now he was faced with the fact that the arsonists were also murderers, killers, as fiendish, as merciless as any he had ever known. Death was holding high carnival around him. The firemen, who had dared to interfere with the incendiary's work, had themselves become targets for destruction. And the flames, like fiends rejoicing in a new-found freedom, were leaping higher. Their livid light was reaching out across the street. The factory was doomed. An ambulance clanged noisily down the block. Came nosing through the tent's crown and whirled up to the fire. Interns, their white suits turned red as blood by the light of the burning building, bent over the dead and dying, lifted them on stretchers. A half dozen of the hideously hitters, bloated bodies were borne away. Other ambulances joined the first. Following them came a long car filled with police detectives. A big man with a pale, aquiline face and black eyebrows jutting menacingly above cold, piercing eyes was the first to alight. His features were familiar to the agent. He was Inspector John Burks of the City Homicide Squad. Murder as well as arson had taken place. Grim dealer in murder mysteries, Burks was on hand. He was followed by a group of experts from headquarters, fingerprint men, official photographers, and assistant medical examiner. In long, jerky strides, Burks walked to one of the bloated corpses. X saw his face grow tense, saw his hands twitch as he stared down. The agent drew closer, but his attention was distracted in a moment by the arrival of two more cars. A limousine and a yellow taxi pulled up close to the fire zone. From the taxi, a small man with a sharp-featured wrinkled face and his snapping eyes alighted. His mouth was working as the gaze riveted on the factory fire. The agent heard a shrill voice even before he could distinguish what the man was saying. The stranger came closer, talking vehemently, gesturing passionately with his skinny arms. "'I own that building! I'm Heron, Jason Heron! Why isn't something being done to stop the fire? What are the engines here for? What are these men doing? I pay taxes! Why don't I get protection?' No one paid any attention to the man's tirade. He stopped suddenly as he glimpsed the police gathered above the bloated corpse, but their legs and shadows prevented him from getting a detailed view. He continued angrily in a moment. I don't care what's happened or whether men have been injured. It's their job to see that property owners aren't ruined. That's my building burning up. The passengers from the limousine were approaching. One was a tall, middle-aged man with glasses, a brick-red face, and a commanding bearing. His companion was younger, efficient-looking, alert. The man with glasses spoke to Heron. Your property's covered, isn't it, Mr. Heron? You're all right. So we insurance people should do the worrying. This is the third fire in a week. Heron turned on the newcomer with angry violence. Matthew Monkford! You've got a nerve to show your face here. If you'd done what those criminals asked you, this wouldn't have happened. My building's covered, but that won't make up for what I'm going to lose in business. It'll take months to build another factory. Meanwhile, I'll lose orders. As president of the Great Eastern Insurance Company, it was your place to protect your policyholder's interests first and foremost even if you had to give in to the incendiaries. The tall insurance man frowned. Do you expect me to encourage crime by surrendering to criminals? This city has its police force, hasn't it? The police? They were posted here to guard this building. And what happened? It's burning, burning to the ground. Neither the police nor the firemen are doing a thing about it. I have contracts outclined for merchandise. I can't fill them. I'll be ruined. Matthew Monkford shrugged. A few more losses like this and Great Eastern will be ruined, too. Heron turned away with a fierce gesture. He stalked toward Inspector Burks. His high pitched voice lashed out I know you, sir. I've seen your picture in the papers. You hold down a soft job with the police. We taxpayers hand you your salary. What do you got to say? It's a disgraceful failure of men to do their duty. Burks lifted a hard, gray face and stared at Heron. His cold eyes seemed to bore through the factory owner. His answer was rasping Get out. "'I'm not interested in you or your building. "'Men have been murdered tonight. "'That's all that interests me. "'Take a look at this corpse and stop your yelling. "'Be glad you aren't in this man's shoes. And if you have complaints to make, make them the commissioner. "'I'm here to run down killers.' Heron gave a startled look at the corpse at Inspector Burke's feet. He gasped, then he shrank away from the inspector's angry eyes. Hands shoved in pockets, he moved off by himself and stared fixedly at the fire. The man who had come with Monkford spoke quietly, but the secret agent's keen ears caught his comment. Heron's the type who would set ablaze himself in order to collect. Our records show that he served a jail sentence on a stock fraud charge. Probably shouldn't have been given any policy. Before this company pays this premium, Mr. Monkford, there should be a thorough investigation. Monkford frowned and nodded, but his cautious answer was pitched so low that X didn't get it. Interns from another ambulance moved up with a stretcher to the bloated body sprawled the inspector's feet. Burks halted them. We'll take charge of this man. He's dead. We're going to hold him for an autopsy. Through the lines, the police were again maintaining a group of excited reporters pushed. The agent's eyes turned toward them and gleamed with sudden interest. Among the keen-featured young men who had hurried to the scene of the fire was the slim figure of a girl. The torchlight of the burning building played over her eager face. It tinged with copper the gleaming coils of golden hair that showed below the close-fitting brim of her stylish hat. It outlined the supple shapeliness of her body. The agent knew her. She was a girl reporter from the Herald, Betty Dale, who took her job so seriously, she was usually among the first to arrive where news was hottest. More than that, she was one of the few people in all the world who knew of the agent's daring secret work. She was one of the few who had gone with him into the shadow of death during more than one grim battle with crime. She and the young man with her crowded close to Burks, she did not wince at sight of the sprawling body. Her blue eyes darkened with horror but held steady, often before she had been witness to the grisly aftermath of crime. Burks maintained a stony silence in the face of the questions reporters fired at him. Even Betty Dale was unable to make him talk. She caught sight of Matthew Monkford, turned and ran toward him, and the other reporters, knowing she had an unfailing nose for news, followed. The secret agent, a faked press card in his own wallet, edged closer. He didn't make himself known to Biddy Dale. Even she had never seen his real face, did not know his name. He would appeared to in a hundred different guises, identifying himself when he chose by signals with which he had grown familiar. He listened as she spoke to Monkford, heard her questioning him about the messages he'd received from the arson ring. I cooperated with the police. I gave them all the information I had. They knew in advance about the threat of this building, but even they were unable to stop the fire. If this keeps up, my company will be bankrupt. Do you think the criminals will get in touch with you again? Asked one of the reporters. Munkford nodded. They'll call me up and gloat as they did before. They'll make new demands and name another property to be destroyed. If I don't pay up, they'll be sure now that I'll agree. Will you? Put in Betty Dale. Munkford passed a distracted hand across his face. Perhaps. I've tried holding out against them. It hasn't worked. If they don't ask too much, perhaps I'll pay. But only on condition they they're thereafter to leave my company alone. Can you trust their promise? I don't know. I don't know. Jason Heron, who'd been edging up, intruded himself into the conversation. You better pay whether you can trust them or not. You'll lose every policyholder you've got if you don't. The men behind this thing are desperate criminals. It wouldn't have surprised me if the racketeer Santos was in on it. "'What makes you say that?' Monkford snapped. Heron's eyes wavered a moment. Fear crossed his face. His answer was husky. "'Because Santos gave me trouble a couple times when I was building the factory. Labor trouble. He was ahead of a racket. He made threats, and I had to meet his demands.' A hand reached out and clutched Heron's arm so sharply he gave a gasp. He whirled around. Inspector Burke's hard face was thrust forward close to his own. Burke's had apparently overheard the conversation. "'If you think Santos is back of these fires, why didn't you mention to the police?' I shouldn't have said it. I don't know that he is. I only know... Birch shook him off as fiercely as a terrier, letting go of a rat. He turned to one of his men, snapped a quick order. Sound out word to bring in Boss Santos. Have it put on the air. See that every cop and every cruiser in town is on the job. Police ambulance drew up and men from it lifted the body over which the assistant medical examiner had been bending. Birch and his squad of detectives moved away. Jason Heron slunk off by himself with fear in his eyes. He got back in the yellow taxi which had been waiting and was whirled out of sight. Monkford ended the interview with the reporters and drew aside the man who had come with him, evidently an adjuster. Even X could not hear what passed between them. The agent reached down under his coat to the left side of his body. Fastened to his belt there, close against his side, was a fine-grained leather case not much larger than a small-sized camera. But it contained delicate, complex radio apparatus and chemical batteries with a voltage as high as any in the world in units of the same size. There was a tiny receiver in the secret agent's vest pocket with a flexible insulated wire not much bigger than the thread. He plugged this into a terminal in the leather case. Stepping back a little into the shadows, the first finger was right hand moved. It pressed a button key at the top of the radio case. He sent out shortwave signals that had a range of 20 miles, signals that Harvey Bates would pick up on another instrument similar to his own. Wherever Bates might be, those signals would reach him. In a moment, the receiver in the secret agent's pocket reeled off a faint series of dots and dashes. That was Bates' ready call. The agent's expert finger tapped out a message. Get all information possible on Racketeer Santos. Have other operatives shadow Jason Heron, owner of Burn Factory. Get that on him. Report immediately. The agent's second finger flicked a small control lever in the side of the radio case. It pitched the instrument to an entirely different wavelength. Bates could no longer hear him. The agent got in touch with another crime fighting organization which he maintained. He repeated his request for information on Heron and Santos and staccato dots and dashes. These two detective agencies were the backbone of the secret agent's investigation activities. While his fingers sent off instructions to his operatives, his brain was busy planning his own actions. In a moment, he had chosen a course for himself that was filled with danger. He lingered at the scene of the fire, watching Matthew Monkford. There was a strange expression in the secret agent's eyes. He noted every gesture that Monkford made. He edged close enough to listen again to Monkford's accents. He carefully stored those impressions in his memory. The adjuster left Monkford's side in a moment and went off to begin the routine questioning of many witnesses. The Great Eastern Company would obviously not pay Heron until all facts were known. Monkford turned back toward the limousine, and the secret agent followed. This was what he had been waiting for. He edged through the tense crowd ahead of Monkford. He passed the insurance man's limousine, noticed the uniformed chauffeur up front, and moved on almost to the end of the block. Here he stood close to the curb and casually lighted a cigarette. In a moment, Monkford's big limousine came nosing along, which just began to gather speed after the congestion in the street. The agent moved so quickly, so deftly, that neither Monkford nor his chauffeur guessed what he was about. He stepped to the car's running board, jerked the door open, and plunged inside. While Monkford gasped and stiffened, the agent crouched. He lifted the blue steel muzzle of a gun and pointed at Monkford's chest. And that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening this week. And just a reminder that if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.